This is Fractal Marketing, the podcast for innovative entrepreneurs taking their product to market. Each show, we take an outside look at one company's marketing and discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, over to your host, Jared Doyle. So I'd like to welcome Melissa Packham to the show. Melissa is a brand marketing strategist. She's been working in the industry for over 16 years. She's worked for brands like Campbell's, Arnott's, Parmalat, and she's based here in Brisbane with me, and we've spent a little bit of time working on a few things together. So I know Melissa, and I know Melissa's vision around brands and what they mean and what we can interpret from them. When Melissa's not doing marketing, she's a toddler mama and a plant mama, and I've got a plant client, so I'm keen to get into that, and also likes craft beer. So all wonderful things. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Great. So Melissa has picked the brand Koala or Koala Mattresses, and that may be the first thing we talk about to talk about today. And we, I mean, if you don't know Koala Mattresses, then you've probably not been online in the last five years. So let's just assume that everyone has seen Koala Mattress ads and get straight into it. Now, I seem to recall, Melissa, when they launched that they were actually called koala mattresses and they kind of rebranded to maybe just koala but let's get into the to the obvious question the use of the word koala as a brand name i mean why do you think they picked koala to start with well look i might be cheating a little bit here but i did some digging to find exactly this out and it's actually a really nice thing from a brand perspective so koalas sleep a lot right they spend most of their day sleeping <laughs> and they're cuddly and cute and soft and so the special technology in the you know the foam that they use for the product and the fact that koalas sleep a lot i think is the perfect synergy for a brand name and it's simple and very iconic in terms of Australiana. So I think, yeah, it's the perfect mash of a brand name to come out. Do you think, I mean, jumping ahead a little bit in the journey for Koala, obviously they've decided to go international. They're now selling into Japan. Do you think they have that vision? Because I mean, living in Australia, Koala's like, yeah, okay, we've got them. But you go to Japan, Koala's. Do you think they, right from the start, were thinking international when they picked their brand? I think Probably they were. It's obviously a a strong hook for them overseas because, you know, the association with cuddly koalas and Australia is so strong. But, you know, even if they didn't start out with that intention to to launch internationally, which, of course, we'll jump into this as well, but the distribution, the four-hour delivery promise that they have, that's an interesting thing to tap into with international. So perhaps they didn't start with that. Maybe it was about just getting good mattresses to Australians. But even still, I think the association works both ways to their benefit. Yeah. You know, I mentioned at the start about when I first heard about them, everyone referred to them as Koala Mattresses. That might have even been their brand name. And for me, I've made up a theory around fast brands and slow brands and fast brands being, you know, it does what it says on the tin, you know, Ron Seal style and Koala Mattresses, it qualifies with the word mattress. And then there's the point where you just become Koala and you can step up. You know, when you're working with startup companies or maybe less established brands, what do you recommend people start with? Because, I mean, it's great to have the ambition to be, you know, Nike or Koala or whatever you want to be, but do you recommend people sort of put that qualifier in there and maybe have a slightly faster brand to start with, or or how do you tackle that? It's an interesting question, and I think it depends on the category and the vision for the brand. So I think a brand like Koala, they started with one thing, one product, 
one promise, simple, single-minded. And they delivered that incredibly well. They built their brand reputation and their equity off the back of that, delivering to that promise. Now they have such brand recognition that they can expand further and maybe they drop the mattresses and become just koala. In terms of a recommendation, it, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because I, I think if there is future vision to expand into multiple different categories and multiple different products, then it makes sense to keep it tight, keep it simple so that you're not boxing yourself in. Because I do see that happen. A lot of brands come to me and go, like, I've, <laughs> I've branded myself as this thing, but now we want to be this thing or we've evolved to become something different. So it does, it does box you in. And, you know, there is that risk that you lose a bit of that brand credibility or um, awareness that you've built under one name if you completely pivot and become something different. So again, I think it's the vision. It really is about the vision for the brand and where they see themselves heading. Yeah, I think about brands like Super Cheap Auto and they're so baked into super... I mean, it's not only is it cheap, but it's super cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and I think about that and just go, oh, you're kind of stuck, right? It's you can't that. get out of that. Yeah, there's no premium happening in there. You know, it's it's done. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, I was working on Super Amart and when I mean, they sort of dropped the Super just to become amart furniture and and that's you know that in itself was a you know that was that was a scary moment for that brand to sort of drop the super part of it and you know knowing who the, the customers were so mm. yeah I, I always find it difficult i personally i like the idea of a brand name that gives you flexibility to move and i think when companies start it's great that we've got an idea it's like oh what we're going to do is going to sell mattresses but maybe you change your mind mm. but if you've changed your mind your brand says something different then it's extra hard to move so in that sense you know koala could have been anything they could have ended up being a coffee brand you know and koala still probably would have worked yeah that's interesting and i think you know if they did have and i think they did have aspiration to get into different categories but they knew they had to get the basics right first the second name you know mattresses being descriptive is a very easy thing to drop once you've built your brand off, you know, the, the main brand being Koala. And probably people were referring to Koala just as Koala anyway. So I think it's probably a very clever strategy and, and thinking on their part to, to do that, to have a descriptive word as the second one that they can easily drop. Well, I'm going to claim that I thought the same thing when I thought about saying fractal marketing yeah. and then eventually I'll become this huge brand and people just talk about fractal and exactly. it's this me. <laughs> it's like the Beyonce of marketing. Yeah. So... Looping back to sort of the, the four-hour delivery, you know, that's not a product feature, that's a service feature. Mm. And what do you think, I mean, it was amazing when they did it, right? No doubt when we got the idea that you could, I think, well, okay, let me let me bring something else into here. Having purchased two mattresses since being back in Australia over the last seven years, the first one, I couldn't believe, I sort of went, this is the mattress I want, this is what I want to buy. It's from a, it was from a large retailer owned by a gentleman who doesn't like the internet. So I won't name names, mm-hmm. but you can guess who that retailer mm-hmm. might be. <laughs> and then they said, okay, that'll be seven to 14 days. When would you like it delivered? I'm like, don't you have them out the back? And so that whole experience was just, I'm like, we only just arrived in the country. We kind of want it now. That wasn't great. And so four hours is almost like a punch in the face to that industry. <laughs> Where do you think, you know, how important do you think that four hour delivery was? Because it wasn't originally there. They sort of introduced it. Was it, is that what they had to do to break into the mass market or is it, was it really born out of who they are as a brand? 
I think it absolutely is born out of who they are as a brand. They set out not with the intention to launch a mattress. They set out to disrupt a category by improving customer experience. So part of that experience is not only the buying of the product, having to go to a physical location and sit on a bunch of beds and go, yes, this is the one for me and we'll take it in six weeks' time when it becomes available and then have that delivery window be, you know, anywhere like an all-day delivery window in a very sort of traditional forgotten and tired and boring category, (laughs) you know, they set out to flip that on its head and say, we can do this a better way. So I think um, it absolutely was born out of their, their brand and their desire to disrupt and do something better. Yeah, I, so full disclosure, Koala made me aware of the mattress in a box phenomenon and that was going around. And then I did that thing that Koala would hate and I purchased off a competitor, Sleeping Duck. And I think for me, you know, Sleeping Duck as a competitor to that brand were able to ride off the back. So they were the challenger brand. And so Koala, of course, has you know, I guess they didn't pioneer the industry. They they very much copied it from the US and Casper and the UK who were out there. But they pioneered it in Australia and they were the leading brand. And then Sleeping Duck came along and a whole bunch of others. But what I liked about Sleeping Duck or what the pitch that got me was that they included springs in theirs. And at the time, Koala was very much foam only and they had springs. And I thought, ah, oh, I'm 40. I don't really want just foam. You know, I still had that. I guess I still remembered foam mattresses being what you got when you were four or five years mm-hmm. old, not as an adult. And so I went Sleeping Duck and, and you know, they copied everything. It was, I think, one day delivery, 100 day sleep guarantee. How does a brand like Koala fight back against competitors and particularly competitors that actually carve out a niche? You know, they've actually done something. I mean, how does a brand, an early mover, hold that advantage? I think it's always about keeping your eyes forward and, and, you know, what's next. So a brand like Koala expanding their range into different products. They're looking at different markets in terms of international expansion. It's not about looking at what competitors are doing. If, if someone's copying you, you know, the, that old saying that, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery, probably in brackets, except in business when it's like carving out your market share. <laughs> but, you know, it is about looking forward and not backwards and continuing to innovate and that's something that they've done well you know their entire time in business and something that they should continue to focus on and are so yeah i I think it's yeah eyes forward yeah well it's interesting because yeah they launched very much picking fights and (laughs) i you know i read what i'm just looking at the name of the book it was um reworked by the guys who created Basecamp Mm, and recently mm -hmm. launched hey the email service and one of their philosophies on a product is to pick a fight, pick an enemy. And Koala very much did that. They kind of went, of all companies, you know, they could have gone after big retailers that we knew and brands, but they went after Ikea. <laughs> I was like, and I, and I get that, but they went after them hard, <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, how do you find from a branding strategy point of view, launching into a market and picking a fight with a major brand? I mean, is it, recommended is it dangerous is it is it is it kind of like is it a all or nothing kind of bet like you, you're either going to win or you're going to lose terribly i mean what, what happens when you what, what's your advice to someone if someone came to you and said melissa we want to launch a you know disruptive industry and we're going to pick an absolute fight with this 
billion dollar plus company. <laughs> yeah. you know, what's the thinking behind that? I think there's a few elements in there. It's probably like you should only be picking fights if you think that you can follow through and that you might be able to chip away a little bit. Um, I think that picking fights was a great strategy in terms of getting disruption and getting in front of people that they wanted to attract. And let's not forget, they were targeting Gen Y, millennials. So they did, they weren't after, you know, the Gen Xs like us to uh, be buying their springless product. <laughs> they were targeting a social media audience. So with by targeting the bigger players uh, in a very cheeky way, it was very on brand, but they were able to follow through in that they had thought out, you know, they got pushback from Ikea, they put another billboard up to apologize and very cheekily offered them a discount <laughs> on their product. So, you know, I think it, it taps into an Australian sense of humor in a way. And the fact that they are an Australian brand picking on a Swedish brand, I think that was, you know, probably quite well received from the Australian audience. And it, you know, absolutely was in that it was totally shareable content for them. It's a very punk attitude. One another brand that sort of takes this same approach is uh, Brewdog, the craft beer brand. So I had to get a craft beer mentioned in there somewhere. <laughs> um, but their founder James Watt uh, wrote a book called Business for Punks, and I recommend that startups uh, read that. So it's, it's a great little read, and it's also about how they're disrupting their category and disrupting a traditional marketing approach. So you know, if there's a traditional way to do something, perhaps there's a you know a more punk way to do it. And I, I certainly think that Koala took that approach in terms of picking fights with bigger players. IKEA probably, you know, again, you know, they're a major player. They're you've got huge market share. They're probably not super worried about a, a tiny, you know, uh, in inverted commas brand like Koala uh, picking a fight with them on a billboard. But certainly the exposure and the the talkability that it generated for Koala was was worth it. But I think you have to follow through. You have to have the guts and, you know, the full support of everyone in your company to follow through with that sort of approach. It's interesting, the choice of Billboard too, as a, as a medium, because, you know, we know out-of-home media is pretty expensive. Big brands use it because they can get lots of coverage. It strikes me that the guerrilla tactics of Koala there are by one big billboard mm -hmm. actually doesn't cost that much. And then magnify the approach, like magnify the effect of that by pushing it out on social media, which is much cheaper. Exactly. It's, do you think, as well as the kind of statement, do you think by using billboards, you also get that real life sort of approach? So and what I mean by that is, I think it's like the as seen on TV effect, where there's still a lot of people, and I think myself included, if I see it on TV, it just feels like a little bit more of a legitimate brand. If it's <laughs> just on Facebook, maybe it's not that real. Do you think there's some value in taking traditional media formats like billboards or radio or TV and then amplifying that brand across social media to say, hey, we've got the reach on social media, but we're not just here. We're also in real life. Do you think that works? And do you think other brands are using that strategy? I think in this case, it absolutely worked. They were very targeted with the billboard buys that they had because you're right, it's absolutely super expensive and it's not it's not really targeted media, is it? It's out there for everyone to see, anyone who's driving past. So I think by doing, you know, it's a cheeky message in, you know, targeted locations that then got amplified in press as well as social media because of the vir virality of the idea that that is exactly you know a very well thought through approach to a traditional and a, a digital media combination in terms of other brands using it i think it would be probably more relevant to think about your end goal and how 
that you can use the medium as the message, I like to say. So, you know, if it's not actually about let's get outdoor so we can get, you know, the mass eyeballs on this product, it's more about we can use this as a vehicle to drive traffic back to our website and get people talking about our brand in a very strategic way. So I think it's not necessarily about format. It's about how you can use it and leverage it as part of a, you know, a 360 degree campaign. That makes sense. Do you think with a brand like Koala, they're going through a stage where maybe they're growing up a little bit or or do brands need to do that, right? So, okay, pick a few fights, get a bit upset, but you look at the brand now, you look at the website now, it feels like it's kind of maybe moved in, if we'll give it an age, it's moved out of those sort of angsty teenage years and now it's into sort of 20s, 25, maybe even getting close to 30 and thinking about marriage, you know, (laughs) it feels like that. Is that natural for brands to go through that evolution? I think it is and probably with young founders as well like the founders are as far as I know you know not even 30 yet so they're probably heading into exactly this life stage where you're you're making homes so you've not got a foam mattress only you've got a couch and you've got you know dresses and you've got other things happening in the house so it's a great analogy for a a time of life I think as a brand I think it is natural though for brands to grow up a little bit and settle into their skin but they're, they're also not challenger brands now you know they they are leading in their space and so you have to sort of shift your focus then to you know what is happening in the bigger space that they're playing in so i think absolutely they've they've grown into themselves and they don't have to be as cheeky anymore certainly they're they're still very dominant in in media so they haven't lost that that touch but yeah it's about you know they don't have to be as irreverent if you like to to get the the cut through do you think that I mean, one of the signals is earlier this year, I think I read, in fact, I know that I read, uh, <laughs> they brought in a, a global CMO, so chief marketing officer. And, you know, CMO title is entirely different to having a growth marketer yeah. leading the front. That, that in some ways, signaled the change. That was like they grew up a little bit and they've, yeah. they've moved out and they've got a, a big place. So they've hired, I think it's the ex-head of Netflix marketing of original content or some, mm. you know, some stuff. But, you know, Netflix and then previous to that, he was working at Grindr. So, you know, these are much more mature businesses. So I guess that's the approach. And and is that maybe also the point where growth marketing sort of steps aside and as the brand matures and it starts to take a leadership position, that's where your classic CMO role kind of comes in and, and takes over? Is that is that a good way to read it from the outside? Yeah, probably. And yeah, they're getting serious. They're putting their, you know, their big girl pants on and they're, you know, they're getting serious about the way that they approach marketing. And in fact, they have not only an internal marketing department, but an internal creative department, which I think is really interesting too. So, you know, everything remains in-house and with the brand, you know, as true custodians of that brand. Um, I think it's also an interesting hire to have someone from, you know, an online content <laughs> and an app uh, CMO come into the position that really talks to their approach to marketing and their approach to content and what they're producing in terms of getting in front of their audiences. You might, you know, otherwise expect that a hire like that might be from, you know, an FMCG background or a retail background or something like that. But of course, they don't have retail. So it is very much about, you know, online space and digital content. So I think that's a really interesting, yeah, hire for that position. Yeah, very much like the the new fad of not just buying your eyeballs, it's earning them and building the content to go in that direction. So just taking a, a step back and looking at the, the branding and, and the logo and the styling itself, I mean, they've gone 
it sort of seemed to have followed a bit of a rule book, you know? It's the logo is flat, it's simple, it's kind of got one embellishment, which if I read it right, it's a little leaf on there. I mean, from a from a branding and, and messaging point of view around the logo and the colour schemes, I mean what what when you look at it from the outside in as a professional, what what do you think they're going for? When they pick the colours, the fonts, the design, what what's would have been their process in choosing all of that? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's that little nod to, you know, a gum leaf happening there, which is also the name of their proprietary distribution system software in the background. So that's, you know, it's a little nod to the koala and their habitat kind of piece. It's a, it's a very friendly colour and very uplifting colour. So it's not a traditional, you know, red or a blue or a yellow that we see in a lot of, you know, the retail furniture spaces. So it's, you know, very distinct from that. The lower case kind of suggests, you know, that it's more approachable and modern than a, you know, a very Times New Roman kind of uh, serif <laughs> typography choice there. So, you know, in terms of visual, it's 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 already saying that it's a modern brand in, in terms of visual positioning. I like that idea of the, sorry, the, the, just going back to the title case. So, if I was all block caps or just titled case, the first part or all lowercase, that you're saying that that creates sort of a, a positioning to sort of say, hey, we're all lowercase, we don't take ourselves too seriously, as opposed to all caps, which might be like, rah, we're Shouting. here, we're important. <laughs> yeah, okay. There is a little bit of that. I mean, when you've got to combine, I'm not a designer, and so, you know, designers might be shooting me after this, but certainly from, <laughs> from my experience with, you know, choosing designs for logos, it is about, you know, the combination of those factors, so that, you know, the uppercase typography with a bright red colour, so something very different to a lowercase with, you know, a lovely teal, <laughs> as Koala yeah. have done. So we sort of went back to, right, right at the start, we're talking about Koala, we're talking about them being cuddly and creatures. I think I remember when they first launched, they had a very simple thing. They donated a certain amount from every mattress to a Koala Wildlife. They've taken that to a whole other level now, and they're B Corp certified. They've partnered with a whole bunch of different companies. They've got ethical supply chain tracking. I mean, we can talk about Koala, but then I think also for all companies. I mean, how important now for brands and, and branding strategy is it around being sort of ethical, forward focused, you know, and, and a brand like taking a stand? I mean, we can go through what Koala's doing, but is this something? I mean, it, it, we know this is a movement happening, but I guess, you know, in a simple way, like why are brands doing this? You know, why is it so important that they do this? Why can't they just put the profits in their pockets, spend a bit more on ads, do a bit more creative and sell some more mattresses? What, what's the logic and what are people working through when it comes to these things? I am so glad you brought this up because this is so close to my heart right now and as it should be for all businesses. So I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit here, but... The, the reason more businesses are stepping up to the plate on, you know, doing social good is because, quite frankly, consumers are demanding it and have been demanding it for years. And it, it is definitely the global majority now. So there's something like, you know, 65% of consumers who will switch brands based on brands that align with their values. And similarly, they'll boycott brands that don't align with their values. So if brands are behaving badly, they'll actively boycott them. Purpose-led and socially conscious brands are the new norm. It's not a 
a choice or a, you know, a nice to have a corporate social responsibility policy that gathers dust in the hard drive somewhere. <laughs> um, I, I think it is just, it's part and parcel of doing business in, you know, especially my God, this year, if we've learned nothing from 2020, <laughs> it's that we have to, we have to change what we're doing in order for the, you know, the world to be a better place. So I think, you know, without sounding, sounding too hippie or woo woo about it, there, there is a role that every brand in every category can play in terms of making a positive impact and giving back. And I think Koala is, you know, certainly a gold standard example of how you can do that and bake it in right from the start. So they were, you know, um, adopting a koala, you know, there's a symbolic adoption of a koala with every purchase from day one, you know, and now they're partnering with global entities like WWF, as you mentioned. So, you know, and I think it's just... If we're going to have a planet to continue to buy from and, you know, have a, a, you know, an economy built into, then we have to, as business owners, change the way we're thinking about our role to play and, you know, playing in the context of that, of what's happening and, and how we can contribute in a better way. Like stepping off soapbox now. <laughs> yeah. I know, I'll put you straight back up there in a second. <laughs> so, you know, we spoke about picking a fight, you know, that was a you know, like a a strategy for going to market, you know, if you take an ethical stand as a brand, there's a good chance that at some point you're going to be called on to pick a fight or to at least defend that position. And, you know, we've seen, again, 2020, a different thing, right? So we're talking about racial equality around, well, particularly in America and American brands and brands that really held out are now being forced to make a stand and potentially alienating. I mean, we've even got the president standing up and telling people to boycott particular brands because they won't let them wear political hats. You know, it's all these things, sporting brands. Is this the new fight? Is this what happens? You know, so I guess what I'm saying here is, does your brand have to have an opinion where it falls around your values? And what I mean by that is, if you've got an opinion, you're going to take a stand and are you, is it important that you walk away from some customers to reinforce that? Short answer, yes. I think if if a brand is being responsible and, you know, not even socially responsible, just being aware of what's happening around it, then, you, you know, you're paying attention to conversations that are happening and the potential impact that that might have on your customers, on your growth, on your plans, on your messaging. I think having a clear plan based around that is at what point do we step up and say something or, you know, are we going to just sort of quietly do things in the background that help, you know, position us in a, in such a way that we're, you know, taking on certain challenges in this sort of space. Um, I think that's just a must have, like you, you just kind of have to, it, the fights are coming from every which way. And I think if you don't have a plan to, you know, not attack, but certainly stand up for what you believe in, then you're kind of going to get stomped on it all over and potentially, you know, that risks your brand reputation. So I think it's better to be prepared around, you know, at what point you step up and say something versus pick a fight versus uh, stay quiet and potentially, yeah, get raked over the coals as a result. Yeah, I think particularly if your market is younger, and I say younger, I mean, it's, it's pretty much anything under 40, you're going to have to have an opinion. Maybe if your market's 55 and above, you can probably get through for a little while, but at some yeah. point you're going to have to... To, to stand up and face that. That's it. And so, I think because, sorry to interrupt, the, um, you know, people trust brands. They trust brands to take action. And so that's why there's this, 
you know, they've trusted brands for so long and now they're actively choosing brands that align with their values. And in fact, they trust them more than governments, which, as we know, many of which are not doing very much, you know, to, to help these causes and, you know, very urgent causes when it comes to things like the climate and, you know, the racial injustice. So it's like there is a responsibility and almost the permission slip has been given for brands to step up into this space and, you know, take a stand for something. You don't have to fight for everything, but, that you know, there has to be an awareness of what is happening around you. Yeah, I, I like to think that it might be the saviour of capitalism because it's <laughs> it's almost like we went so far into the optimization of profitability and shareholder returns that we forgot that other stakeholder, the customer, and the customers kind of found their voice and went, actually, we can make stuff happen here. Mm. You know, I think it's a good thing. I kind of, you know, often hear these people, you know, you generation, you blame generations like, oh, the new generation coming, don't do this, don't do that. I actually kind of really like you know, as, as a 42-year-old, I like the new generation coming through. They seem to have stronger opinions, and I like what they're doing. I'm like, that's all right. I'm quite happy to be in retirement at the moment anyway. <laughs> yeah. and, and I look forward and go, yep, you can, it seems like they're going to be okay at running the world because they're a little bit more politically aligned. But yeah. anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, conscious of time, Melissa, was there something um, that I haven't introduced so far around Koala that you think is important that we discuss from a brand or strategy point of view? Or do you think we've pretty much summed it up and we're ready to launch another disruptive mattress brand? <laughs> I think uh, I'm just looking at my notes here because I, you know, I wrote down heaps, but I think you know another piece about their journey is how transparent they've been throughout the whole process. So, you know, when they first launched, they had hiccups and, you know, they weren't delivering as they intended to, you know, to their customers in terms of their promise because they had available issues and that kind of thing but they stayed really open with their with their customers and transparent about what that you know their development and how they were improving their processes and things like that so I think that's a really important point to make in terms of you're not going to be perfect you don't have to pretend that you're perfect you also don't have to pretend that you're a big brand if you're not yet and that's something that you know they were nice and scrappy in terms of how they chose their media um, formats and were able to amplify their message in a, in a very quick way, in a big way, without necessarily, like we were talking about, spend lots of money on mass media. So I think it was that scrappy kind of very startup approach, but, uh, you know, done in a very meaningful and intentional way that helped them get to where they got to so quickly. Yeah, I am. Um I mean, I fall into this trap as well, but I'm often talking to business owners and we have this feeling like we can talk about a brand, um, we talk about a company like we, us, like with this big corporation and you think it's never a good scenario because you usually you're not a big corporation, you can't deliver like a big corporation and when someone who wants the big corp finds out that you're not, they tend to leave you and then the people that want to work with a small business don't sign up to you to begin with. So I just sort of... Put the founders out there, own it, be your own brand. And I know I fall in this trap too. I'll often, if I ever need to write anything about Fractal as a company name, I mean, it's just me. Why do I talk about it? I mean, it doesn't make any we. sense. It's yeah, just, the, the yes. elusive we. <laughs> yeah. It's like I do the accounts, I do the invoicing, I yeah. do all the work. And like, and, and for the right people, that that's and for the people that I want to work with and the people that are likely to want to work with me, that's the way they go. Exactly. Speaking of which, if someone's listening to this now and they say, oh, I like what Melissa's saying. I'd like to work with Melissa. I'd like to have her look at my brand and have a chat. What 
is the best way for people to find you digitally or offline? And, you know, how, do they, how do they look you up and find out more about you? So I do lots of sky riding so people can look up in the sky at any time and see. <laughs> That's obviously a joke. Uh, no, you can find me online at www.abrandisnotalogo.com. I hang out a lot on Instagram at abrandisnotalogo. And, of course, LinkedIn is the other place that they can find me. So look me up, Melissa Packham, on LinkedIn. Fantastic. I love LinkedIn. I just don't keep track of anyone's details anymore. And it's going back to LinkedIn. <laughs> Straight up. message. Yeah. Off we go again. Yeah. <laughs> so, Melissa, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm absolutely convinced everyone who's listened to it has enjoyed it as well and definitely learned something. And it's so good to tackle a brand like Koala, where for me, I often think about it in terms of growth hack like it's always like what do they do what was the tricks and actually to, to break it down to brand values and, and strategy has been really really helpful for me i'm sure for everybody else so thank you very much thanks so much for having me it was loads of fun thank you thanks for listening to this week's episode i hope we were able to provide you with some great marketing ideas that'll really help your business as always if you'd like to support me and the show just jump onto iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and rate and review. Those reviews really make a difference and help me reach a broader audience. If you'd like to connect, the best way to find me, of course, is on LinkedIn, following me on social media, or just connecting. And if you've got ideas for future episodes or you're a marketer and you would like to appear in a future episode, just hit me up on LinkedIn as well. I'd be happy to have a chat. Thanks a lot. And I look forward to speaking with you next week.